finished. Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you so much for your faithfulness. Uh, we're just so blessed and honored to be a part of your family. We're so blessed and honored to be able to gather together as one in worship. Uh, and, and Lord, we just thank you that we get to live this life for you, that you give us this one chance on this side of eternity to just give it all for you, Lord. And that's what we're choosing to do. And so, God, I just thank you so much for these wonderful people. Thank you for this family, this local gathering of believers. Um, that just bless my heart so much. And I just thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wow. So, um, yeah, welcome again. I am, I'm in the middle of a series, if you're new here. If you're not new here, you guys know that very well. Because we've been in the series for like since April, beginning of April, so it's been quite a long series, but um, that's intentional, and if you don't know, we're in the, we're kind of in this, uh, uh, this year, the Lord, when I was praying about this year, I really felt that the theme he wanted for this year of 2017 was a presence-driven life, and I was, I was like, awesome, because that's what we burn for in this church, uh, that we'd be a people of his presence, and uh, so, you know, I started off this year talking about our spiritual DNA, the history of our movement, uh, going back to the Jesus movement, and uh, talked about just the values we have in this church. And the number one thing, uh, like, of course, we are a Catch the Fire church, so we are all about the fire values. Um, uh, but the, there's a unique expression this church has in Ottawa, and we, like all Catch the Fire churches, really, we really, really, really love the presence of God. And so the, one of our main values as a church is that we'd be a resting place for God, a resting place for his presence. And that language really comes out of Isaiah 62, 1 to 2, where God says, where, where will my resting place be? And then he says, this is where I'm going to dwell. People who have a humble and contrite heart who need tremble at, our word, at my word. And so, the, so since April, um, I started off this year talking about the kingdom of God. I was in the middle of a series there, and that really, if you get, I mean, you guys know very well now that that's really a foundational teaching. Uh, the thing that Jesus talked about the most in his ministry was the kingdom of God, hands down. It's not even a, uh, up for debate there. But um, so we spent a lot of time on that building a foundation because understanding his kingdom is so crucial for our faith and what that means. Now, uh, since April, we moved on to this series called, the, I'm calling it the Spirit Series, but essentially you can see the theme here. Like we're talking about the presence of God and the children of Israel and the prophets and the early church equated the presence of the Spirit of God with the presence of God. The Spirit of God was God's presence. And uh, I've, I've talked about this a lot before, so I won't go into all the detail, but the point is um, it's important to understand the Holy Spirit, right? If we're going to be a presence-driven people, a presence-driven church, then uh, <laughs> we have to understand the Holy Spirit. And one of my, uh, you guys who've been here during the series, I kind of start off by saying this, so you know what my urgency is. Uh, so you know why I'm spending so much time on this, because I'm spending a lot of time dealing with theology, and part of the reason is because I really have a strong sort of urgency that the theology of the Holy Spirit has been completely neglected in the church. Completely is a strong word, but almost completely. So, you know, we give lip service to the Holy Spirit. Of course, we'll say Father, Son, Holy Spirit and stuff. But 
Like, in all honesty, you can go a really long time in most churches and not hear one message on the Holy Spirit. And the reason this is an urgency that I have is because the New Testament church, the Holy Spirit was absolutely crucial, absolutely fundamental to their theology and their experience of God. Hands down. Like, there's, no even, there's not even a question that the Holy Spirit was crucial. You just read the book of Acts. But not only the book of Acts, you read the letters of Paul the Apostle, and it's interesting that he talks about the Holy Spirit so much, so much, and yet most books, a lot of books, I should say, that do deal with theology and Paul will devote like a page or two on the Holy Spirit out of like a whole volume, you know? And it's, it, that, that's symptomatic of, of really the issue that I'm trying to address is that if he was first and foremost at the forefront of the theology of Paul the Apostle and other New Testament writers, then how important is it is that we uh, have that understanding as well, right? We want to have congruent theology with the early church, with the uh, fathers of our faith, with the apostles. And so um, what I've been trying to do is, is really uh, uh, emphasize how important the Holy Spirit is theologically. And so... Uh, if you've been, because he lies at the heart of everything in the New Testament theology, right? Christ is right there in the center, but he's right next to Christ in the center of our theology. Um, and there's a lot of, because as, as a function of him getting neglected and put to the periphery and nobody ever hearing about him, uh, people get kind of nervous when you talk about the Holy Spirit. It's like, yeah, the Father I get, the Son I understand, but the Holy Spirit, he's like some gray oblong blur. Um, and I have, right, he's just some kind of, like, who can relate to a dove or whatever. <laughs> Lots of misunderstandings surrounding the Holy Spirit. And so uh, I've been trying to really go deep in this to build a foundation to show everybody, to show us that he's front and center of our theology, front and center. And so we started off, uh, if you go a couple ahead, talking about just, just like, what's the center of New Testament theology? Um, Rather than giving one thing, there's more than one thing, but I think you can make a pretty decent case that these three things, actually there's more than three, but these three things are pretty important for understanding New Testament theology, okay? And the Spirit is crucial to every one of them. So the first thing that we spend a lot of time on, or a few sessions on anyway, is that he's the key to the eschatological perspective. That's just a fancy pants word for the ideas that the early church had about the end times. They felt that we were in the end times, and the evidence of that was the Spirit came. That's why in Acts chapter 2, it's like, this is to fulfill what Joel the prophet said. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. In the last days. The point is they thought they were in the last days, the already not yet. Um, and I'm going to just uh, kind of leave it at that, other than to say it's, an, it's the essential framework of the entire New Testament. You have to have an understanding of that, of the kingdom of God and, and what they believed were, were that we were in the last days in order to understand all the New Testament writers, uh, arguably. And so I spent, you guys know it, spent a lot of time on that. So if you're interested, you could go earlier in this series, check that, those messages out, um, also in the kingdom of God series. But we moved on last week to the second thing, and they're all related, so, so no matter what, we're going to hit on them here and there, but I'm really focusing on salvation in Christ now. Okay, so last week, you, you'll know that we talked about salvation, understanding the facets and dimensions of salvation in Christ, um, and, and uh, because that's a, arguably the central issue of New Testament theology, okay, salvation in Christ. 
And the Holy Spirit plays such an important part with, uh, about that. Uh, and I'm going to be talking about that more today and in the, in the, the weeks to come. Because I'm kind of transitioning. Last week I talked about salvation uh, and what it means. Because it's so much bigger than I think we often uh, give it uh, credit. Uh, but anyway... The Holy Spirit plays an absolutely crucial role to salvation in Christ, which is often kind of neglected. And so, uh, I don't know, this is sort of going to be a few, at least a few messages on that. Last week we talked about how that fits into the eschatological perspective, the framework I just talked about, the already not yet. And you can see that the New Testament writers uh, talked that way. It's so interesting. If you, don't, if you don't understand that's the perspective they had, it doesn't make sense. But you see in different scriptures where, uh, for in, instance, in Ephesians 2, where it says, Paul, Paul says, you were saved, past tense. Okay? 1 Corinthians uh, 1.18, he says, you are being saved. Present process, tense, you're being saved. And then, for instance, in Romans 5, he says, you shall be saved. Past, present, future. And you see even within the one portion of Scripture, he'll go back and forth, past tense, present tense, future, past. Why? Because they have this perspective. That's why it's so important. So last week, if you're interested, the last message I talked all about that, how salvation fits in with that framework. And then the third thing, which we'll address more in detail at some point, is that uh, he's the key to what it means to become the people of God, which is the central goal that God has to create a people for his name. So... Salvation has to do with this glorious, quote-unquote, eschatological reality. That God is making a people for his name. That's awesome. You see this throughout the whole New Testament. And, and we talked about how the children of Israel were the people of the presence. And that's what distinguished them from all the other nations of the earth. That they were the people whom, among whom God chose to dwell in his temple. And a few weeks ago, we talked about why that's so important that Paul uses the language of the temple that we now, as a gathered community of believers, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the fulfillment of the second temple, temple promises because the Holy Spirit dwells in our midst. It's amazing. So we talked about the, the significance of 2 Corinthians 3, one of the most important portions of Scripture on the local church, the local community of believers. And Paul says, do you not know that you yourselves are the temple of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit dwells in your midst? And then this most severest warning of the New Testament, don't you know that God will destroy the person who destroys his temple? <laughs> wow. Talking about church splits and stuff. Because we are his temple. It's a big deal. And God, that goes to show how much dignity that God gives to the local church. It's an amazing thing. So salvation. So what distinguishes us now in the new covenant is that we're the people of the presence. We're God's people, Jew and Gentile alike. And someday we'll talk all about how it's the Holy Spirit that makes us. It makes us one. Paul says this over and over again, that we're unified in the Spirit, Jew and Gentile alike. But the thing I want to talk about today, we're talking about salvation. Salvation is in Christ, Period. But it's realized in the life of the believer by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to, I'm going to say that a whole bunch of different ways today so we get it. Because that's such an important reality. That's so important. So the presence of the Spirit is both the evidence that salvation's come and the guarantee of our final inheritance. Talking about the already not yet perspective, uh, whatever. So the thing that I have, I have a pet peeve with, and I don't know if maybe you guys won't, under, uh, won't agree with me and that's fine. But So I make generalizations. This isn't true of every church for sure. And God willing, this isn't the case for our church, but 
generally speaking, talking about the Western church now, generally speaking, the church often treats the Spirit as a matter of creed and doctrine, but not as a vital experienced reality in the believer's lives. Okay? So yeah, I said this earlier, we give lip service, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, talking about practically walking that out now. He's usually left to the periphery. And another way of saying it, rather than Trinitarian, we've, we're Binitarian. Father, Son, it's all you, you, know, you can talk about the Father all you want for months, and that's great. Not say Holy Spirit once, no one would bat an eye. You could talk about Jesus all you want. For months, on end, no one would bat an eye, which is perfect. That's great. The issue with that is, my point is, you could do that and no one would care if you didn't mention the Holy Spirit once. No one would even notice probably. Okay? Because we've, we're really practicing Binitarians for the most part. A lot of people. Okay? But you give a series like this on the Holy Spirit, people get nervous. Somehow you can emphasize the Holy Spirit too much. Not saying you guys, I'm just saying, you know, people can get nervous, you know, because, because he's so neglected. Because he's so neglected, it makes people uncomfortable. Don't over, overemphasize the Holy Spirit. It's like, how can you overemphasize God? How, you can't. It's just like, say, like, imagine I said, you're overemphasizing Jesus. How offended would you be? No, I'm not. That's impossible. Or if you spent the whole year talking about the Father. No problem. <laughs> I bet. You talk a whole year about the Holy Spirit, people might be, you're getting off there. You're emphasizing too much. No way. He's God. He's God's Spirit. He's God's very presence. He's the person of the Holy Spirit. And I, and I, I would argue the reason people get nervous and, and have that perspective that you can overemphasize the Holy Spirit is precisely because he's been neglected. Okay? And so that's why I'm bringing, trying to bring some balance maybe to this, <laughs> to this neglect. That's, you know, we're in the middle of a series, and I have no idea how long it'll go. For all I know, the rest of the year, because we're in the presence-driven life. And there's so much. Like, come on, I don't know what message I'm on. Maybe 12, 11, 12, and there's so much. I could go on so much on this. But what's cool about it, and I hope you guys appreciate this, is because he's such a fundamental part of our the theology, we're revisiting the fundamentals, <laughs> okay? Just like salvation in Christ. And so I'm, I'm appreciating revisiting this because salvation is an inexhaustible truth that we're going to be uh, trying to grapple with for eternity. And I don't want to boil it down to some cliche because it's not. It is so grand. It is so amazing. Okay, and so we're going to spend some time on this. Um, now, the New Testament writers, like Paul, and I have to say this, were Trinitarian to the core of their experience in theology. Now, I want to, I want to make sure I make this clear. The word Trinity does not appear anywhere in the Bible, period. <laughs> okay, so people get nervous when you talk about the Trinity, because they're like, that's not in the Bible. Granted. But I, I hope you will see, when I, even after today, how important this was. It was a presupposition to what, how Paul understood everything. Presupposition. Okay, so yeah, he didn't say the word Trinity. That's just a word we use to try and, like any word, try and uh, give some kind of mysterious, complex concept and to boil down to a word, and that's fine sometimes. Right? You, just so we're on the same page. And I'm not going to pretend I understand the mystery of the Trinity. We serve one God, okay? So <laughs> theologians have been arguing this for centuries, 
And I'm not going to try and pretend we have, anyone can't claim they have it figured out. They don't. But the point is, Paul clearly, and the New Testament writers clearly uh, had the Trinity, this Trinitarian understanding at the core of their experience and their theology. We're gonna be, I'll show you that today if you don't believe me. Because some, some people don't believe that, even Christians, and that's okay, and, and I get that. But anyway, such a Trinitarian understanding makes a huge difference in our own relationship with God. Okay. What I first want to talk about is this, because I talked about how it's at the core of his experience in theology. Talking about Paul, but talking about the early church, okay? The, the, the Trinity. Now, what I want to show you is the experiential dimension of salvation in Christ. It's, it's so crucial. <laughs> it's like, you know, I've talked about this before in different ways, but I'm talking about salvation now. The experiential dimension. Okay, so you can see throughout the entire New Testament that the Holy Spirit played a crucial role in the experience, the experience dimension of salvation. The message of the gospel was always, always, always accompanied by the demonstration of the Spirit's power in the early church. Always, period. And I'm going to show you a few verses that show you this. It was, it was just how they operated. It wasn't even like a thing. Paul just kind of says it in passing. And I'll give you a few verses so you see over and over again, this is how it happened. When Paul reflects back on their conversion, he always brings up the Holy Spirit. So, Romans 15, uh, uh, starting in verse 15, and I'm going to go through 18, I think, but here's 15 and 16. Yet I've written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. We're talking about the gospel now. So that Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Remember last week we talked about the different metaphors of salvation. Sanctification is one of the many metaphors. And here he says that the Holy Spirit played a crucial role in sanctification, in that aspect of salvation. Okay, but that's another point for another day. What I want to show you is this. Look at verse 17. Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading Gentiles to obey God. Talking about salvation. By what I've said and done. Okay, then he, then he elaborates what he means by that. By the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. Both, what I've said and done, proclamation and demonstration. So that from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I always mix that up, Illyricum, I have, look at this, fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Fully Think about that. Look at how Paul's defining a full gospel message. Not only word, but a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power was an essential, crucial part of the full gospel message. Crucial part. So notice that's how Paul defines it. That it was both word and a visible demonstration of the Spirit's power. Both. Not one. Okay, and, and how common is it that you hear an evangelistic message here and you don't hear, you don't even hear about the Holy Spirit, never mind a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power, right? Proclamation and demonstration are a vital, vital aspect for fully proclaiming the gospel, and we have only proclaimed the go a partial gospel message according to this, haven't we? Okay, word and deed. Now that's not just some Isaac, if that was one scripture, fine. That was him <laughs> summarizing his whole ministry, right, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is almost, almost to Italy. I think it's modern Croatia. 
But look at this. Here's just a couple examples if you don't believe me. 1 Corinthians 2.4. Look at this. My message, he's talking about when he came to them first, proclaiming the gospel. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but what? With a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Because, come on, how many of you, like, you, you think about apologetics, how we try and get people into the kingdom. It's all about arguments and wisdom and trying to outsmart the atheists or whatever, how it makes rational sense. <laughs> I have news for you. Our gospel's never going to make rational sense ever, period. In fact, the chapter right before this, right before this, in Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, he says the gospel is foolishness. It's foolishness. It's a stumbling block to the Greeks who are all into wisdom. So again, here we're trying to use human wisdom to argue that it makes sense. Paul's like, look, that's the foolishness. The, the, it's the ultimate oxymoron, a crucified Messiah, a stumbling block to the Jews. So it's never going to make sense. That's why faith is so important. You're, it's not going to be a rational thing, and we've made it a rational thing. Okay, guys, here's a set of propositions, the ten tenets of our faith. If you mentally assent to this, you're in. No way. No way. No way. No. No way. <laughs> no. no way. No. Look at this. Why? Because if that's how we approach it, then your faith is based on my ability to argue using human wisdom. So then Mr. Smarty Pants Atheist comes along and crushes my arguments. What happens? Your faith was resting on my ability to convince you. So then what? You're shipwrecked. Paul's like, guys, I'm not reverting, resorting to human wisdom because I don't want your faith predicated on my ability to convince you. I want it predicated on the power of God. Why? You cannot argue with an encounter. You cannot. Right? You get healed miraculously. How are you? You can't deny that. Or, right, whatever. Whatever the encounter looks like. You cannot argue with an encounter. And that's what Paul's saying. I, don't want, I want your faith resting on the power of God, not my ability to preach to you. All right, if that wasn't enough, look at this. The first mention of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians, he's, he's taught, referring back to their conversion. Look what he says, verses 4 and 5. We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God. We're going to be talking about the love of God soon. That's an important part of salvation. That he has chosen you. He's talking about their salvation. How? How do we know he's chosen us, Paul? Because, he says... Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. That's how you know you're saved. That's how you know God chose you. Because the Holy Spirit showed up. You see that? He, he, it's, not, he's, it's clearly, it's just right there. He says, because I didn't just say some kind of set of propositions. It wasn't just words. It was demonstration of the Spirit's power. And if that didn't convince you, look at this. Galatians now. And I'm talking about Paul the Apostle because you can look at Acts and easily make this case. But for one, some reason, Paul, a lot of people ignore the fact that Paul operated in this way. 
all the time. This is, how, this is just how the early church understood salvation. Okay, look at this. This is, this, someday I'll talk all about, I mean, I've talked about this before. I'm going to talk all about this because this is what, the, the, his whole argument in Galatians is predicated on this portion of scripture. And this portion of scripture gets ignored in a lot of commentaries and stuff. They don't know what to do with it, but this is, this is Paul's whole basis of his argument here. Then he goes into theology after this. But look how he argues. Look at this. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? He's calling the law witchcraft. This is crazy. How many people do we put under law in the modern church? I'm not talking about the Jewish law now, right? You're saved. Now here's 101 Christian rules you got to follow, whether it's explicit or implicit. Paul's saying that's witchcraft. It's crazy. It's a big deal. But look at this. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now here we go. Verse 2. Look at this. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? I want you to think about this. He's referring to their salvation. What's his question? Did you receive the Spirit by doing law or by believing? What's the point? His whole argument's based off this, their encounters of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you can't argue with that. So these people are trying to get you to do law, and Paul's like, you're so foolish. Look it. Did you get the Spirit by getting circumcised? And they're like, no. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You can't argue with an encounter, so that's where he goes. This is his way of asking, were you saved? Think about it. Did you receive the Spirit? We would ask, were you saved by works of law or believing what you heard? This is Paul's way of asking, were you saved? Did you receive the Spirit? Why? Because that's the one evidence, that's the evidence that you were saved. Did you receive the Spirit? Then he goes on, verse 3. After beginning by means of the Spirit, talking about their conversion, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced, talking about their experience now, have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask you, did God give you his spirit and work miracles among you? He's talking present tense here, actually. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by works of law, by believing what you heard? That's his whole argument. And they can't argue with that. They're like, oh my goodness, you're right. God's given me, I'm not doing law and he's given me my spirit just because I believe. It's all about faith. So that's, I already said this. This is his way of asking, were you saved? This is, or we would say, are you saved? By works of law or believing what you hear? This is, Paul does, this is interesting. He seldom uses the kind of language we do. Were you saved? Whatever we, you know, what, what, what do we say these days? What's that? Born again. But what's interesting about born again? Born again by what? The Spirit, <laughs> you know, crucial part here, guys, <laughs> that we often just don't say. But anyway, he, Paul seldom uses the language we do. That, are you saved? This is his way of asking it, okay? Did you receive the Spirit? This is Paul's way of getting, are you asking about getting saved. So, it's that difference between the early church and us that, that is so radical, I think, that's so radical, it explains a lot about our current state in the modern church, I think. Okay? And our generally anemic 
uh, life in the present world? Why, why do Christians struggle so much? Why can't you usually see a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Man, we'll talk about this someday, but Paul, the way Paul defined Christians is he called them spirit people. It's the word pneumatikos. We talked about that a while ago when we talked about what is spirituality. Because the Corinthians, are you a people of the spirit? Are you in the realm of the spirit? Versus not a spirit person. It's, I'm getting hammered. I'll talk about that someday. But the one thing that distinguishes whether you're saved or not is whether you uh, uh, have the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's the identity marker of being the, in the people of God now. Not the, See, what they were doing is they were using Jewish identity markers. Are you circumcised? Do you follow the food laws? Do you observe the holidays? And Paul's like, boulder dash. That's not what you do now. That was the identity markers in the old covenant. You know what the identity markers now? Holy Spirit. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Because that's the thing that, that distinguishes us from, from everyone else is that we're a people of the presence. That's how important this is. This is why, why I'm spending a whole series on this. This is so important and it gets ignored somehow. So important. Now, the point is salvation is Trinitarian in the Bible, not Benetarian. Not Benetarian. Okay? And you can't have salvation that's not Trinitarian. And I'm going to show you scripture after scripture just to show you this because you know that's guy, you guys, that's how I roll. But before I go into that, I want to give you an example. <laughs> I love this example. Someday I'm going to, I, I, just for the sake of time, I'm not giving you everything. I'll just paraphrase, but someday I'm going to go over this. Acts chapter 10, I love it. There's so many lessons in this chapter. It's a, it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal story. But what happens is the centurion, this, <laughs> this guy named Cornelius, he's a centurion. He's a Gentile. He's praying because he fears God. He's not saved. He's not a Jew, but he fears God. And this angel shows up one day. He's like, he's so, God is so stoked about this guy because this guy, he's like Cornelius. Your gifts to the poor and your prayers have gone as a memorial offering before God. Now, go get this guy named Peter. This isn't Caesarea. Go send people to Joppa, okay? Get this guy named Simon who goes by the name Peter who's staying at Simon uh, the Tanner's house. Of course, this is crazy to Cornelius, so he just does it. He sends some people. Meanwhile, <laughs> Peter's on the roof praying. He's hungry. He's praying. He falls in a trance, has this encounter. The heavens open. The sheet comes down with all these unclean animals. And God says, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no way, Lord. I'm not going to get up and kill and eat because I haven't touched anything impure or unclean my whole life. Talking about the Jewish law because they were unclean according to the law. God says, don't call anything impure that I've made clean. And this repeats three times. And Peter's like, what? Totally like going against his understanding of the word of God, right? What do you mean? My whole life, this is my understanding of the, the, uh, what I'm supposed to do. And you're telling me not to do it? What the heck? <laughs> Remember, the law of the spirit set you free from the law of sin and death. It's Romans 8, 1 to 4. Galatians 5, 18, those who are led by the spirit are no longer under law. And they didn't understand that yet. They're still doing law. So Peter's pondering this, and then the doorbell rings. And the Holy Spirit says, Peter... These guys at your house, go down and go with them. I sent them to you. <laughs> so Peter goes down, and, and there's these guys, these Gentiles. And so he goes with them. And he gets to Cornelius' house. And he's like, guys, you don't understand this. But according to my law, it's illegal for me to be in your house right now because you're a Gentile. But the Holy Spirit told me to come here, so I'm here. What do you want? <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, remember? Cornelius tells him the story about the angel. So Peter's like, okay, 
preaches the gospel, gives them a message. You, okay, here. Just, uh, you can read it for yourself, gives a message. Look at this. <laughs> All that to go here. Look what happens with Peter. Is just He's still speaking. He's still giving them the gospel. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking, I love that. He didn't even finish his sermon. People getting blasted. While he was still speaking, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who'd come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. They couldn't believe it. Why? Because this is the, the implications is that they're saved because they had the Spirit now. They're like, what? Gentiles can get saved? They didn't have this revelation yet. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. That was the experiential outward demonstration. Yeah, the Spirit's totally on them. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. What does that mean? That means they're saved. He's like, why? Because they've received the Holy Spirit just like we have. So who can stand in God's way? So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus. Look at this. The point is, what was the evidence they were saved? The Spirit. And they're like, whoa, okay, I guess who can stop them from being baptized? And they're saved because they got the Spirit now. The one evidence. <laughs> now, I like this. This is chapter 11, but, uh, starting in verse 1, but this, this is the next verse. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter came up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. They were mad. <laughs> and said, you went to the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? They're still thinking law, right? So what, what does Peter do? He explains the situation. He explained what happened. I'm fast forwarding. I explained the situation. Then look at this, verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them talking about the experiential evidence, the reality of salvation. The Holy Spirit came on them as he came on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the evidence that the kingdom of God was here, remember, the whole, that was what they are waiting for. The Holy Spirit came back. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Right? That's the evidence they believed. Who was I to think I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections. I love that. And praise God. Oh, my goodness. The Holy Spirit came along. Oh, okay. Yeah, just worry there. Okay, okay. Right? Because that's how much they put, they uh, uh, put, uh, I don't know the word I'm looking for. That's how much they, they saw that as the uh, evidence that you're saved, as the Holy Spirit came on them. So they're like, oh, oh okay, I can't argue with that. So then, even Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's the evidence that he granted repentance that leads to life, is they got the Holy Spirit. You see that? The experienced dimension of the Holy Spirit. So receiving the gift of the Spirit was the evidence that they were saved in the early church. I showed you Galatians 3, 2, and Paul says, Did you receive the Spirit by faith or by works? This, it's this. It's this experiential dimension of salvation that's often missing from the contemporary Western church, I would argue. Because we made it about a set of propositions, not about relationship, right? Do you believe this, 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 and this? Yeah, I believe that. Okay, you're saved. Really? How do you know? They didn't go there. They didn't say, do you believe this, this, and this, and this? They said, did you receive the Spirit? Yeah, okay, you're saved. So, not only is the experiential dimension of the Spirit a crucial part of the gospel, right? Remember, proclamation, 
and demonstration, not only is it, is it a crucial part of the evangelistic message, which besides some people like Reinhard Bonnke and others who are actually living that, um, most are, are appealing to intellect. But the Spirit himself plays a crucial role, a crucial role in the theology of salvation. We've been talking about the experiential dimension, the actual encounter. And that's a crucial part of salvation. Now I'm talking about, and I should say this, it, I am not trying to say you have to have some uh, crazy, it doesn't, it doesn't always look the same way. I'm, I need to say that. Because unfortunately there's some people who come from uh, I wouldn't even say the stream of Christianity where they say you have to speak in tongues or you're not saved. Why? Because they say that's the evidence that you got the Spirit. Mm -mm. No way. You look at Acts, no. Sometimes it was prophecy. The, the point is, there was an outward, experienced something happening that was clear they received the Spirit. So it might look like you rolling around on the ground, holy roller. <laughs> might look like you shaking, might look like you speaking tongues, might look like you prophesying, might look like you shake, might look like goosebumps. I don't know. The point is there's an outward demonstration. Miracles, signs, wonders, whatever it is. The point, you see what I'm saying? But I, I, I don't want you to think it has to look a certain way. Because I know when, when I talk about this with some people and I say the Holy Spirit's the one identity marker of being a Christian, and I mean, come on, I can... I can back this up a whole bunch of scripture, which I'm doing right now, but I, even more. And people get offended. What do you mean the Holy Spirit? <laughs> Why? Because I think, I think it's because they think I'm saying you have to look like you're getting drunk or something. I'm not saying that. It doesn't have to look a certain, I hope that, does that make sense? It doesn't have to look a certain way, but the point is there is clearly an outward demonstration that you receive the Spirit. Or at least a subjective experience, okay? Even if people don't see it, if you're feeling it. But besides that crucial part of the theology of salvation, I'm going to show you this. Okay, somehow we've uh, got them out of the theology of salvation. and We've made it focused only on Christ, which is crucial, but Holy Spirit is also a crucial part of salvation. I'm going to show you that. Somehow we've separated the two and made it just about Christ when it's about, the, about Christ and the Spirit. And don't worry if you're nervous, I'm going to show you this biblically, and I'm going to spend time on this, so you, so you, right? Okay, so, the threefold activity of the triune God. Talking about the theology of salvation now. At the heart of the gospel message is salvation. All right, like I said earlier, the central issue of the New Testament is arguably salvation. Throughout Scripture, salvation in Christ is the cooperative work of God, Christ, and the Spirit. I'm going to show you this over and over again. God's saving a people for his name through the redeeming work of Christ and the applying work of the Spirit. And I'm going to say that in a whole bunch of different ways, so hopefully by the end we'll get it. Because <laughs> uh, you'll see over and over again this is the case. So the scriptures where Paul specifically speaks of salvation, he speaks in terms of God the Father initiating it. Always God the Father initiating it. Okay? Christ as effecting it historically, so he's the one who has historically accomplished our salvation. At a point in history, he's the one who did it, historically. The Spirit's the one who affects it experientially in the individual in the life of the church. Okay, so in these passages on salvation is where you find the real heart of, of Paul's Trinitarian theology. And like I said, Trinitarianism and a lot of the philosophy surrounding it, was, is a, it wasn't part of Paul's concern. He wasn't this is an interesting thing to think about. He was not, his letters were not theological um, 
statements or, or, or treatises or anything. He was, his letters were like our emails right now, addressing a specific situation in a certain city to a certain people at a certain period of time. And you, so, so people get all like, like what the heck, trying to make uh, uh, like systematic theology out of stuff when Paul never intended it to be. He's just writing someone a letter and then you have to almost guess what his beliefs were. But fortunately, he says things in a certain way where you can get you can get what his theology was. He wasn't writing a theological treatise. You see what I'm saying? He's writing a letter to a pe- Imagine this. Imagine you're writing emails to people, and then like thousands of years later, people are still reading them because <laughs> they're part of the Bible. <laughs> like that's what it was like. He's writing people emails. <laughs> and so anyway, <laughs> my, <laughs> I'm not trying to undermine the Bible, though the point is he, his thing was task theology. His was like working out the theology he had in the marketplace, so to speak. This is how this stuff works, people. So, but you see, when he talks about salvation, he had this as a presupposition, though he didn't use the word trinity. This is where he was at, and you'll see that. Salvation comes in this threefold activity of the threefold God who's active in our salvation. Okay? So there's many scriptures where Paul summarizes salvation in Christ in Trinitarian terms. And I'm going to, here's one. I'm going to show you a few. Here's one. I love this one. This is like, you could argue, is a creed. <laughs> okay, summarizing our faith. Look at this. Titus 3, 4 to 7. I love this. But when the kindness and love of God, remember, love of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us, talking about salvation, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? He saved us by the Holy Spirit, he says there, before he even mentions Christ. But remember last week, talking about metaphors, washing a rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Rebirth, born again, sound familiar, right? Then he goes on, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ our Savior. All three, right? So that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. All three are there, aren't they? Right? All three. Now, I I, I love this verse. If probably if I had to pick one scripture in our entire Bible of what summarize our faith, one scripture, imagine, okay, one scripture, what would it be? You know, some might say John 3.16, I don't know. I would say 2 Corinthians 13.14, <laughs> the last verse of the, la- of the last chapter of 2 Corinthians, the very last verse in the whole book. This is his doxology. Look what he says. Because this succinct summary offers a whole bunch of uh, theological keys to understanding not only salvation, but understanding God himself. It's really cool. But just, this is what he says. May the, look at this, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now I'm going to show you how these three things, these three quote-unquote not activities, but kind of, are, are actually an essential part of salvation. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, the love of God is the absolute foundation to our entire existence. <laughs> the love of God. Okay? And amen, I, I love, our, if you guys don't know this, Catch the Fire. The acronym FIRE is our four fire values and Catch the Fire. And the first one is what? Father, heart of love. The love of God. Why? That is extremely biblical. Everything's predicated off the love of God. Everything, especially salvation. Okay? So, absolute predicate of our existence. 
Now, God's love has been demonstrated historically in its most lavish expression through Christ's death for his enemies. How many of you know the Bible says we were his enemies before we were saved? Even though we're his enemies, God died. Christ died for us. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. What? Jesus saying, guys, that's what I did. Follow my example. Right? What did he say on the cross? He's hanging there. People spitting at him. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Whoa. (laughs) We think forgiveness is hard. Imagine that. I don't think we could even imagine that. The love of God. Demonstrated by this extravagantly. Okay, but God's love is not merely in a historical event. Okay? By the presence of the Spirit, God's love is an experienced reality in the heart of the believer. Now I'm going to show you this. I love this. uh, Romans 5. Okay? Really verses 1 through 11, but I'm just going to give you some of them. Uh, just to show you, to highlight a few things. Look at this, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Remember the Trinity. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace. Remember, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The love of God, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ now through grace, in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Fast forward to verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because what? God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. Then he goes on, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, talking about historically now, just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. I love how he distinguishes good from righteous. We'll talk about that someday. Verse 8, look at this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. You see that? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the love of God is the foundation of salvation, period. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ gave concrete expression to that love. He died for us while we're still his enemies. It's amazing. Through Christ's suffering and death on behalf of his loved ones, God accomplished salvation for them at one moment in human history. But look at this. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit continually makes that love and grace real in the life of the believer, and in the believing community. It's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit plays a vital role to the experience of God's saving grace. And it isn't just a moment. We'll talk about this. Life in the Spirit is life in the Spirit, beginning to end. Remember in Galatians 3, 5, he says, actually verse 3, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to complete the flesh? What's the point? The same way you begin is the same way you end. That's the whole Christian walk is based off this life in the Spirit. We'll talk about that later. It has to do with Christian ethics. But look at this. Just a few verses on this. Romans, talking about the love of the God manifest tangibly in the community of believers. Romans 5.30. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. 
Colossians 1.8, you learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and also told you of your love in the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And it's an interesting thing. Because in Galatians 5.5, he says, this is the only thing that counts, faith expressing itself through love. Then a few verses later, he says this, the fruit of the Spirit's love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Same word. In other words, it's the Spirit who produces that love and that faith in us. It's the fruit of the Spirit. That's why that's the whole Christian ethic. And the primary imperative in Paul is Galatians 5.16. Those who walk by the Spirit are no longer fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. Those who are led by the Spirit in verse 18 are no longer under law. Why? Because we live by the Spirit now, and he produces God's character in us. He produces God's love in us. He produces faith in us. He produces peace in us. He produces joy in us. All characteristics of God's character. Right? And so we're no longer under law precisely because the Holy Spirit's producing God's righteousness in us. It says that a whole bunch. Again, we'll talk about that someday with ethics. But you see how important life in the Spirit is. Because the pri- people say the primary imperative is love one another, but the Holy Spirit's the one who produces that love. The fruit of the Spirit, so that we can love one another. One another. That's how important this is. So God's love is not just an historical fact, okay? But God's love has been effectively realized in the experience of the believer. God's love has been poured out as an experienced reality by the presence of the Holy Spirit, whom God has also lavished, poured out in our hearts. I'll give you a couple other scriptures on this. We're talking about the Trinity now, okay? The triune God. Producing salvation. So Galatians 4, 4 to 6, I love this. Remember, God initiates. So, but when the set, verse 4, but when the set time has fully come, God, what? Sent his son, right? God initiates. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Remember, that's one metaphor of salvation. That we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you're his sons, look at this. God sent, he initiates forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, that spirit, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. So you are no longer a slave, talking about redemption, using that metaphor, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you an heir. Now look at this. Remember, I'm emphasizing, God sent his son to redeem those who are in slavery to law. That's why he uses the metaphor of redemption there for salvation, because he's talking about slavery to law. So God sent forth his son who effected redemption. Talking about salvation, redemption. But God sent forth the spirit of his son to effectively work out redemption in our lives. I'll put it another way. God sent forth the spirit so that having received adoption as sons, we might say to God, Abba. We're his children now. The Spirit crying that out in our hearts is experiential evidence that we are not slaves, but children who have been adopted into God's family. You see that. He's, that's the experiential reality. The Holy Spirit producing the Abba cry, which is evidence we're his children. We're no longer slaves. So the Spirit effects or brings about that adoption in our lives. Now, I'm going to show you the same thing in a different portion of Scripture. So you can see it clearly. This is Romans of uh, 8 verses 14 to 17 for those look at this those who are led by the spirit are the children of god that's how important being led by the spirit is right 
How are we ignoring this in the church? That's the thing that makes you the children of God, those who are led by the Spirit. Verse 15, the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive, look at this, brought about your adoption to sonship. You see that? He brought it about. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children experientially. Now, if we are uh, children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Talking about the Trinity. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Talking about the final eschatological fulfillment of all this. So, the fellowship. Talking about the fellowship now. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is how God brings people into an intimate and abiding relationship with himself. We're his children. By the Spirit, he testifies that we're his children and we crowd Abba Father because of it. The experienced reality. And that fellowship also causes them to participate in all the benefits that grace and salvation, of grace and salvation, rather. This happens by indwelling them in the present and guaranteeing their final eschatological glory, which is what I just said. He guarantees what's to come. So the, look at this. The threefold divine activity. God did it through Christ and by the Spirit. You see that. God initiates by sending the Son, and by sending the Spirit, the Son affects it historically. The Spirit accomplishes it in our lives. That's why... Having a Trinitarian perspective and understanding salvation is crucial because that's how Paul understood it. That's how Paul, that's how the early church understood it. Now I can just show you a couple other passages on this. I'll show you the same thing. Just, just so you don't think I'm trying to cherry pick isolated scriptures. No, this is throughout the entire New Testament. And the, these are, aren't as long. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And some of them I already mentioned. If you think about some of the ones I mentioned when I started talking about how when Paul preached the gospel and they experienced the Holy Spirit, those are Trinitarian too. But... I already talked about those. So 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved, remember, loved by the Lord, because what? God chose you as first fruits to be saved, talking about salvation, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. You see how crucial the Spirit plays in salvation. It's not just belief in Christ. It's Christ and the Spirit affecting sanctification and salvation in your life experientially. So God's people are loved by the Lord through his death because God chose them for salvation through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.11, we talked about this last week with the metaphors, but I just want to show you this in the context of the Trinity. And that's what some of you were, but look, you were washed. One metaphor for salvation. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Both. Okay, the name there of the Lord Jesus Christ means the authority in that context and by the Spirit of our God. So God did this threefold converting activity in our lives through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 2 Corinthians 2, 21 to 22, look at this. Now God, talking about the Trinity, who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership in us. He put his Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. So the presence of the Spirit is both the evidence that salvation has come, and the guarantee of our final inheritance through and with Christ. The eschatological perspective. We talked about that. Final glory. Romans 8, 1-4. Trinity. Therefore, 
there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, look at this, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by what? Sending his Son. Remember, God initiates. He sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but what? Live according to the Spirit, because the Spirit produces God's righteousness in us now. So we're no longer under law if we live by the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm not going to go over the whole chapter, don't worry. But read the whole chapter. I'm just going to highlight a few verses to show you this Trinitarian uh, uh, reality of salvation. Starting in verse 4, Ephesians 1. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love... Remember, it's the predicator in love, and we're talking about God the Father in context. He, the God the Father, predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise and glory of his glorious grace. Remember, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption. That's another, right, the metaphor for salvation. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Fast forward to verse 13 now. Same chapter. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Talking about salvation. When you believed, look what happened. This is the evidence that you believed. When you believed, you were marked with him a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until, until the redemption, remember, already not yet, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Notice that when, he, when they believe, they are given the Spirit. Crucial part of salvation. Okay, so this is, think about this. What I just read you is a powerful passage which brings the whole activity of God together. God has affected redemption in Christ, and he's brought it to pass in our lives by the work of the Spirit. Both. God is the initiator. Remember, I'm saying this a whole bunch of times in different ways. God is the initiator. Christ is the one who's affected it historically, and the Spirit's the one who brings it experientially to bear in our lives. All three. <laughs> so crucial. So what should we do in light of all this? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> First, I'm going to summarize. To hit this home. Say the same thing in a different way. One God brings salvation through the cooperative work of the three divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So important. His redemptive love, remember the love, is predicated on his love, initiated her salvation, which was then effected historically through Christ, the Son, and made effectual in our lives by the Holy Spirit. The predicate of salvation is almost always associated with the, uh, God the Father's love. God loved us. The demonstration of that love is through the work of Christ. How did he love us? Through the death of Christ, which affected redemption for us. And the effect of working out of God's love that has brought redemption through Christ is the effectual working of the Spirit. And you cannot have the first two without the third. You cannot have the first two without the third. The Holy Spirit works this out in our life experientially. Crucial part of salvation you don't have salvation that's not Trinitarian, is the point. And like I said, the problem is most contemporary Christians, general statement now in the Western church, have been practicing Binitarians. Okay? Think about most gospel messages you've heard. Is the Holy Spirit ever mentioned? 
Probably not, unless you come from a Pentecostal charismatic stream. Probably not, even then. Unlikely. Somehow, this is the problem, somehow we focused on the work of Christ, which is crucial. That's biblical, totally. Don't mishear me. Crucial. But without the side-by-side work of the Spirit in salvation. Somehow it's just been Christ, Christ, Christ. What about the Spirit? Clearly Paul in the early church thought that it was the Holy Spirit and the Father were crucial parts of salvation. Why did every time he talks about salvation, he has that over and over and over and over again? Unless, like, doesn't that show you we should probably emphasize the Holy Spirit in salvation? Because that's, like I said, the one thing that identity is the identity marker of Christians now, whether you have the Spirit or not. And again, I'll I'll show you one scripture that clearly says that, but I'm going to develop that in the future so you know. We've often separated these, the Spirit and the Christ, in salvation, but in the theology and experience of the New Testament, it could never have been separated. Never. Never been separated. You have not experienced the work of Christ if you have not received the Spirit, period. Okay? There's no such thing as salvation that doesn't have the work of the Spirit. And if you're like, what are you talking about? Because I've, t- <laughs> I've said this before and people get, what, what, what? Red bells. Like, what are you talking about? Here's one verse. I, I have a whole bunch I'll show you someday. One verse that you can meditate on if you don't believe me. This is Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if, indeed, the Spirit of God lives in you. Look at this. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. In other words, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. That's what he's saying, isn't it? If you, are, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have a Christian, you don't belong to Christ. That's the one identity marker, whether you're a Christian or not. That's why Paul said, did you receive the Spirit? <laughs> why would he ask that? Because that means you're saved if you did. Why did the apostles freak out? Well, right when Cornelius, the whole household got uh, the Spirit on them. And they're like, oh my goodness, who, who are we to argue with God? They're saved because the Spirit came clearly. That means they're saved. So salvation in Christ is not simply a theological truth based on God's prior action in the historical work of Christ, which is what we made it. Salvation is an experienced reality made so by the person of the Spirit coming into our lives. One simply cannot be a Christian without the effective work of the Trinity. Okay? So what does this mean for us, practically? Because I mean... Um, you know, like I said, what do we do in light of all this? The Spirit must be reinstated in the Trinity. <laughs> he, must be, he must be reinstated in the Trinity, okay? Not just lip service, okay? Because he's never been excluded in our creeds and doctrines. But I'm talking practically excluded. He's been practically excluded from the experienced life of the church. Like I said, practicing benditarians. I mean, how true is that? I, I, I don't know. In my experience, that's true. I don't want to, you know, I, maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but I don't think so. In my experience, again, I could be wrong. I think you probably would agree with me if you've been in church, any, if, you know, in any church. We need to have the experience dimension as a vital part of our lives, our gatherings, and the gospel message. That's what we do in light of all this. That's the theme of this year. A presence-driven life is not just some catchy theme trying to attract charismatics to our church or something. 
It is the fundamental reality in our lives as believers that we're a people of the presence. Period. A temple of the Holy Spirit. Period. A resting place for God. Period. We are the people of the presence. That's what we're called to be. Individually and corporately as a local church. And we need to somehow get that experience dimension back into the church as a whole. Amen? All right, so uh, what I want to do is something a little different. If you guys would close your eyes, everybody. Why? Because we're talking about salvation now. And I don't want to be presumptuous at all because I think we could be. I think we could totally be presumptuous and just assume everybody's come to salvation in Christ in this context because I just know, you know, a lot of us have been going to church for years and years and years and years and years and years. And a lot of people might just assume they're saved or, um, you know, they don't know. (laughs) No one's told them that you actually need to uh, be saved. Like, I mean, experientially, you need to receive Christ. They're experienced reality through the Spirit. And some of you just might not know. Like, hey, you know, the famous question, if I died tonight, would I go to heaven? That's a good question to ask. If you're not sure, um, why chance it? You know, it's not worth it. We're talking about eternal destiny now. And uh, so what I like to do, because I come from a church, I came from a church that uh, had everyone close their eyes and bow their heads so that you wouldn't single anyone out. And I actually advocate that. And the reason is because that's how I got saved. And I don't see a problem with it because I remember once there was an evangelist who came and had said, come forth if you want to accept Christ. Come forth. No one came. Crickets. Then my pastor came up and said, okay, close your eyes. Who wants to come to Christ? Whole bunch of people. So I'm not going to let social fear or dynamics get in the way of eternal decisions. I don't care. Right? It doesn't matter. So if that's you. Now, we're talking about experience reality now. The, the Holy Spirit will often convict you. You'll just know it's for you. You know, this is me. I don't have to convince you. Your heart might be pounding. You know, yet there might be different ways you just, oh, that's me. I don't know. Or you just might not know. You really want to know. This is the day the Lord has made. <laughs> Let us rejoice and be glad. So, if that's you, I am not going to single you out. I'm not going to call you forth. I'm just going to get you, everyone's eyes are closed. I'm going to get you, if this is you, Just to raise your hand. Is anyone in this place, today is the day I want to make a decision to make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of of my life. I want to surrender all. Maybe you've been in church for decades and you have never made that decision. That's not uncommon. Or maybe you're not sure. Maybe you backslid. Maybe you're like, hey, I've been doing this for years, but I haven't been living for the Lord. If any of that describes you, If you want, just raise your hand and I'm going to pray for you together so we don't single you out. And today's your day. So is that, is anybody in the room, just by the raise of hand, want to do that today? Okay, there's, I see you. Is there anyone else? Is there anyone else? Perfect love casts out all fear. If there's fear preventing you from doing this, today's your day. There's just 
All you got to do is raise your hand. I'm not going to single you out. Anybody else? Okay. Now, what I'm going to do, because I, pro- I said we wouldn't single you out, I'm not going to. I want us to pray this together for that reason. And what I'm going to do is after, uh, I'll just hang out in the side room there, the glass room there. And if you want to, um, I'd love to chat with you and pray with you if you raise your hand. But no pressure. I don't, you know. But I, you know, or if any, any of you, even if that wasn't you and you want to talk to me about something or you're not sure, you have questions about anything I talked about, I'll just hang out in there. Uh, if you want prayer, whatever. Okay? Uh, but just so you know, because I don't want to leave you, like, I, I personally would like to pray for you, and if you have any questions, explain things to you and stuff, but um, not necessary. So let's pray together out loud, okay? All of us, because like I said, I don't want to single the person out. Uh, uh, let's say this together. Lord Jesus, <laughs> I thank you for your great mercy. And Father, I thank you for your great love. And Holy Spirit, I thank you for the experience reality of that love. And today I confess that you, Jesus Christ, are my Lord and Savior. I believe that you died for my sins, that you were raised to life on the third day, and that you forever live to be my Lord. Thank you that old things have passed away, that all things have become new, and that today I'm a new creation in Christ. Today I choose to live for you, to live for your kingdom, and to not live for myself anymore. I thank you, Father, that today I'm a new creation in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a round of applause. Thank you, Jesus. So, like I said, if that was you, uh, I'll just hang out in there. You can chat if you want or whatever, pray with you. The rest of you, if you would like, uh, if we have some prayer team, yeah. If you guys want to come up, if you want prayer for anything, maybe, maybe you want more encounter experientially with the Lord. You know? Um, no problem. <laughs> you know? There's always more. So even if you've haven't experienced as much as you wanted. There's always more, and we love praying for that kind of thing. So if that's you, or if you want healing, if you want anything, we have some awesome uh, prayer team. People would love to pray for you. We also have hospitality, coffee, snacks uh, in the uh, great room. If you go out in the hall over there uh, to your left, if you want to hang out and fellowship or whatever, drink some coffee, snacks. Um, if you're new, I don't know if this is mentioned during announcements, but we have these connect cards on the pews. If you want our weekly newsletter, uh, email, feel free to ha- uh, fill us out, hand it in to me. Uh, we have a gift for you. Uh, email address and name is great. Uh, the rest of you have an awesome week. Thanks for coming out. Have an awesome long weekend. I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your weekend. Bless you guys.